You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The big hoofs of a half dozen draft horses. The sight of those barrels surging forward. Already a crowd whistling and thirsty. They hadn't seen anything like it on the sidewalks since Armistice Day. The beaming, smiling politician in the derby hat is surrounded by the lights of New York City's Empire State Building. And yet, it wasn't peace they were celebrating today. It was beer. Well, a form of it. In St. Louis, as the clock struck midnight at Budweiser Brewery, well, really Anheuser-Busch Brewery, 25,000 were there, ready. 1,500 trucks, too, were ready, scattering orders of suds throughout the city. A flight from Milwaukee was sent with barrels of beer to Washington, D.C. for President Roosevelt. Was he to drink it? Maybe a little. More of a clear liquid fellow. But perhaps the apex of it all was in Baltimore, where opinionated H.L. Mencken was at the Rennet Hotel, deputized as a beer taster and thus allowed to consume the new beer of 1933 a little bit before America would. And who better when he said, It's good. It was like a papal blessing. All this occurring, and Prohibition wasn't even over yet. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You have to understand. Understand this, the first moments of what would be dubbed the New Deal were, for those who cared to imbibe, decidedly alcoholic. They may have seen those events with little bit blurry eyes because part of Happy Days Are Here Again was drinking one of the first bills, but particularly they are drinking the fancy, the new modern beer. The entire five boroughs of New York City became a beer garden. 30,000 new, not supposed to be opened places, newly licensed and able to come out into the light. Brewing of this beer could start early, as long as the Budweiser folks did. The first batch wouldn't arrive until 12.01 a.m. April 7th, the day that new beer was allowed. And that was the case at the Iroquois Brewery in Buffalo, where the mayor got the first delivery. April 7th was the date set by Congress and signed into law by President Franklin Roosevelt. We've been whipped cream sodaing and ice creaming too long, a paper blared. 
A restaurant trade magazine was overjoyed with this new beer. We expect that women who have developed a habit of going to speakeasies and drinking liquor will be generous patrons of the new beer era. Restaurants are advised to have a homey and cool air. The new beer garden must contend with the writs that they are used to. Mural painters are to be employed. Bright blues, green, red, yellow. Murals of sunshine and trees. Of Mediterranean seascape. Put these beer drinkers in the middle of Rome. Planters, rise to your craft. The era of the swinging door gas jet saloon is over. The nation's bartending association assured America that these new bartenders serving this new beer would be brimming and clean. This new beer, called 3.2, would be different. America was ready and responsible. So join the Beaumont at the Shindig and have a -a ring-a-ding-ding as a responsible, constitutionally empowered individual now permitted by the state to let everything get a little jake. But what is happening here? Prohibition's not yet over at April 7th, 1933. All that's really happened is a new president and an overwhelming majority of his party in Congress has been elected. That shouldn't change a constitutional amendment. What's happening here? How could Iroquois and Buffalo now sell so much beer that they have to place a newspaper ad that said, thank you, Buffalonians, but we have no more beer. And what we have, we can't get it to you anyway because we have to purchase some more motor trucks. We need a break. How could a Los Angeles brewery order 600,000 glass bottles from a delighted Toledo glass factory? who were probably drinking on the announcement. How could tens of thousands of bartenders go from breadline to bar apron? How could it happen when prohibition has not yet been replaced? Well, Franklin Roosevelt found a way. He and Congress merely changed what was defined as intoxicating. And beer, or at least beer of this lighter 3.2 by weight variety, was not. To be clear, no state because the Supreme Court actually decided this, no state like New Jersey or Rhode Island tried could decide to legalize alcohol. They tried. New Jersey immediately upon the prohibition and then the Volstead Act, in effect, enacted or empowered prohibition. The 18th Amendment is, after one year from the ratification of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation Notice it doesn't say drinking, but let's say the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within, the importation thereof into, or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territories subject to the jurisdiction thereof, includes Puerto Rico and the Philippines at this time, for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. The Congress and the several states shall have concurrent power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Great. New Jersey says, using our concurrent power, that means you have the power, federal government, but New Jersey also has the power to enforce this. We're going to say in New Jersey, beer that's, say, 2.75 to 3.2, we're going to allow that. That's how we're going to enforce it. Sadly, uh, for some, the Supreme Court put the hammer to that idea in 1920 in a group of decisions called the Prohibition Cases. With little explanation, it's simply a decision from the court. The chief, uh, Justice White, does write a little bit more in his own concurrent opinion. And at least legally speaking, no state or even a Congress 
can decide not to enforce the 18th Amendment because it is a constitutional amendment and constitutional law is above any other law. Now, New York is among many states that they got caught up in the post-World War I movement and they had a prohibition law. They repealed their own prohibition law in New York State, but it couldn't change the fact that in the United States, sale and manufacture and import and export or transportation of liquor is all banned. Because brewers had tried. In 1919, they hired Elihu Root, Theodore Roosevelt, and Taft's good friend and former cabinet member and expert lawyer who presented these arguments that the 18th, it says they're concurrent. How can you have concurrent powers without New Jersey or Rhode Island having the power to be able to, to say, well, we have a de- we'll ban hard liquor per this amendment, but we have a different definition. Concurrent means simply to the Supreme Court that Rhode Island and the federal enforcement could march arm in arm enforcing the law. Rhode Island can, as Kansas had, be even more strict with the law, but they couldn't pick and choose what was legal. One of the findings of the court is an obvious one that federal law supersedes. So not only does constitutional law supersede federal law and state law, but federal law supersedes constitutional law. When the Volstead Act is passed, and this is what outrages the brewers and outrages many people, some who voted for a prohibition amendment thinking was only banning the really hard stuff. Even in Congress, Volstead, who is a Minnesota congressman who is, for the most part, just writing what the Anti-Saloon League, the lobby group, wants. Um, Bill's largely written, his bill's largely written by William Wheeler of the Anti-Saloon League. But nonetheless, he's in arguing uh, during questioning in Congress. And they say, why do you have this language about concurrent in there? And what he says is, well, let's say a state wanted to make its own ban. And let's say they wanted to ban liquor that was more than 3%. He uses that example, so it's in the legislative history. They try to bring that to the court's attention. It's not something they're interested in. When the Volstead Act is passed, so this is what actually gives substance to the vaguer amendment, they decide that what is intoxicating is 0.05, one half of 1%. Prohibition passes in the spirit of World War I. It passes, oddly enough, to some moderns now as a progressive measure. It's not universal. At minimum, it splits progressive, but there are many progressives who support this as a measure to shut down big alcohol that was taking money from people and also affecting the working classes in various ways to empower African Americans not to be exploited. That's why W.E. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, are temperance supporters. It's passed over Woodrow Wilson's feudal veto. He wanted to kick the ball down the road, and his veto is overridden. That's how powerful the forces are. There's an existing prohibition bill that's a wartime prohibition to save alcohol for industrial uses. Wilson is – there's some question, right, as to why Wilson um, vetoes Volstead and why – And of course, like everything with Wilson at this time, there's a question as to whether it was him or did he decide or some close advisors. Anything that happens in 1919 is going to be questioned. But ostensibly, it's to kick the ball down the road a bit to where I believe they feel some of this post-World War I sacrifice, fear, um, patriotism, this movement will be lessened and maybe it'll be easier to have a more rational discussion. 
It's not, his veto is never going to stop uh, prohibition. By the time we reach 1933, it's 13 years. Really, you have to understand how unpopular prohibition has become. There's a lot of dries who have converted now. People have seen the rise of gangsterism, but the real whammy was the Great Depression. At this time, cities, counties, and the federal government receive income from excise tax that was a large portion of what they could do. And more was being asked of cities and counties and the federal government during the Great Depression. Plus, wineries, breweries, distilleries, and bars would employ people. It was a business that a working man could start. Now they could do no more than make church wine and fill medicinal bar orders. This employed few people. Now, breweries in particular could produce a near beer. 0.05 was the definition. So think if you're familiar with a beer like a, an Odules, one of those. It's not alcoholic, but it has this very tiny trace amount of alcohol in it. Now, if you can't, if you haven't had an Odules, try to imagine a beer and just think of it as like 10 times weaker than what it is. And sometimes it's even more. And those exceptions, the medicinal exception to Volstead and the priestly exception and rabbinical exception, really abused. I mean, doctors made a practice out of these prescriptions from patients with a, <coughs> doc, I need help. Church memberships, in some cases, boomed. A famous one was a rabbi in Oakland, California, who was converting a large group of people to Judaism, including like some Irishmen, a lot of Irish names in his uh, synagogue. And he would be cracked down on. A lot of this would be regulated more as we get into the 20s. But even these exceptions wasn't enough to create a large brewing and winery industry. There's no such tricks as part of one of the first bills that would be called the New Deal in Franklin Roosevelt's 100 Days, the Cullen-Harrison Act, simply said, for the record, that 3.2% beer, alcohol by weight, not ABV, we'll get into that, was not intoxicating. If it's not intoxicating, then the 18th Amendment falls in terms of regulating these beverages. Because Congress and several states shall have concurrent power to enforce the article by appropriate legislation. Congress has the power. Like I said, states can't decide on their own, but once Congress did, intoxicating liquors, beer is no longer intoxicating. Beer as it's principally made, because a lot of beers in America were 2.75 by weight to 3.2 by weight. They decide on 3.2 for reasons we'll get into. Um, important points to make. 3.2 is not ABV, which is the beers that you'll that's what you'll see on bottles in 49 states in D.C. We'll get into that. Um, that's alcohol by volume. Alcohol by weight looks lower than it is. So 3.2 alcohol by weight is about 4 ABV. So New Deal beer is something akin to Coors Light or Bud Light. Technically, it's what most brewers said they were producing in some surveys of the country. said they were producing that before the prohibition. Some were less. Beer is a very popular drink. It's a hot country in a lot of places. You, if you're looking to cool down, you don't need a heavy beer, really. You need kind of a German or Czech lager product that can cool you down. The ambiguity about ABV levels related to what is bad or good was what FDR and the Democrats exploited when he took office. I mean, FDR was not a full wet. 
not by any means. His Georgia supporters, who was a dry, said, well, FDR is a wet, but he's not soaking wet. He's a moderate. In the middle of the convention in 1932, when they're trying to beat FDR, people like Garner and Al Smith, who don't want him to be the nominee, they try to introduce, they introduce a repeal prohibition platform, and FDR is forced to oppose it at the convention. He's not successful, so the platform survives. Democrats come out against the 18th Amendment in there, uh, and they will start working on that as process. So not, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, if you've ever had a light beer, say a Coors Light, it's probably true that you can get loaded from it if you have enough. So the prohibitionists looked at the attempt to bring in beer from the beginning and they, that they started in 1919 and said, you've got to be kidding. Use your eyes. But in general, the other side said, yeah, but granny having a light beer or gentlemen drinking a few once you've taken the really large alcohol by weight off the table and the hard liquors off the table, that's not intoxication. Use your eyes. Like both sides are appealing to common sense. Use your eyes. The real argument going on behind all these numbers, and because some rigorous science are used, we'll examine the role of science in this issue, but it was never without these kind of common sense logic appeals and politics, definitely politics. And there was simply a different politics in 1920 than in 1933. Because before we think like FDR, Cullen, or the Mississippi Senator Pat Harrison, who was the other part of Cullen Harrison, were willy-nilly liberals, a point to make is by 1932, both parties in a forum called for an end to the 18th. Both parties were done with it. That's um, not always well known. The GOP said that their party was divided and they called for a new constitutional amendment to resolve these differences. The Democrats called for the repeal of the 18th Amendment. But, you know, and this is a, a sop to the kind of not-so-soaking-wet moderates like FDR and others that's reflected in the 21st is you're going to see state regulation will be allowed. But both parties, uh, you know, by the time you're getting the 1932 election, both parties and 90% of Americans are going to vote for both want the repeal of the 18th in two different ways. The, the scene as this is going on, though largely empty, that Empire State Building has just opened in New York. It is after Al Smith loses the presidential election in 1928, and he's seen as a martyr by many, particularly those that feel that he was brought down by racists and, and bigots in the South. This is his project. This is his comeback. And when those draft horses arrive bringing beer to Al Smith in front of the Empire State Building for this moment. He says, this is a grand day. This is a happy time. Not only is it going to bring money, but also good cheer. Amelia Earhart and the First Lady just took a flight from Washington, D.C. to Baltimore, during which each one of them took turns flying. Sarehart was an excellent flyer, and the First Lady was learning and would fly in several until the Secret Service said it was too dangerous. Wiley Post had just made his 15,000-mile journey around the world in an airplane. Americans did it first. The Chicago World's Fair featured rainbow-colored buildings, 
So different from that 1890s World Fair that was the city in white. Animatronic giant figures. Airships. Chicago had licensed 700 establishments with the paperwork, ink on the paperwork barely dry for the near beer day. In that city, Anton Cermak had just built a political organization of previously unaligned immigrants, largely built on this prohibition issue and intrusion into their privacy. A rich person could have a whole basement full of liquor. For the poor, they were raided. A homebrew was found, they'd be raided. Wasn't enforced fairly, wasn't enforced equally with intensity, and was targeting them. Unfortunately for Cermak, he's killed an assassination attempt on Roosevelt. One million barrels of beer were consumed in the first months of 1933. Stranglers shouted, Prisit, and cheers, and here's how. Milwaukee residents could bring a tomato jar or a milk can to the brewery and get it filled with beer. In the next three years, brewers would spend $400 million upgrading equipment. Brewers would spend millions on advertising to get beer, that working-class, sudsy stuff, in front of the middle class. Untold millions were paid in taxes, not just to cities and counties, but a good chunk to the federal government. Did we mention that after Cullen Harrison was passed, the next bill that Franklin Roosevelt and Congress passed was a revenue act to get money from all of these beer sales shared with the states? Not everything in the papers was good. As Franklin Roosevelt wins an election, Adolf Hitler loses one in Germany. The war hero Hindenburg is elected president. But Hitler's able to force a runoff, and it's enough to get him into a chancellor's spot with a figurehead president that he'll ignore. The German general and hero of the recent war, Ludendorff, pleads with Hindenburg, who is his former superior, don't allow this man in. He'll ruin us. It doesn't take long to see newspaper articles about violence, assassinations of political opponents, all the while, Herr Hitler is grumbling about vengeance for women and children of families of the Nazi party who had been killed before the 1933 elections. No one can figure out where he's getting his numbers from. In his own beer hall push, only 15 people were killed. One of the more violent events. But he keeps citing it. He keeps talking about how he's holding this phenomenon of vengeance and violence back as best he can, but he can't control his people. In America, Al Smith strongly speaks out against him. In an anti-Hitler rally in 1932, he says, Hitler is like the Klan, brown shirt or night shirt, no difference. Al Smith and Franklin Roosevelt won't see eye to eye on everything, but on this issue, 3.2, Smith is delighted. It wasn't the planes that killed the beast. It was beauty that killed the beast. In silver gelatin, audiences are treated to King Kong, the jungle beast unleashed on the city. Fay Ray is kidnapped by Kong, and the airplanes are sent out to deal with the beastly threat. Stops the greatest news story since the World War. Here Robert Conway, Great Britain's strong man of the East, superintends the rescue of British subjects from a city torn by civil war. Lost Horizon, featuring unusual for this time, a skyjacking, a plane taking over by a road rogue pilot and a trip to Tibet. Riding back the panic-stricken natives, 
Conway with three other men and a woman escape in the last plane and fly away into the unknown to disappear from the face of the earth. Into what strange adventure did Great Britain's future prime minister and his four companions fly as their plane continued over an uncharted course with a mysterious pilot at the control? After the crash, the survivors are led over a mountain to a magic land called Shangri-La. Everything they could possibly want. It's paradise. Some want to stay, but some don't. In music, Ethel Waters, African-American crooner, well-known now to both white and black audiences, has a number one hit with Stormy Weather. Harpo Marx, the celebrity everyone wanted to meet. He says nothing. It's his silence that makes him golden. Oscar Levant, the famously nervous piano player, would make piano pieces for radio and the talkies at this time. Nobody was better. So stage fright that he'd go through rituals sometimes involving pills to get himself the courage. As Congress had considered the Volstead Act, desperate brewers about to lose their livelihood turned to scientists. Anton Carlson, no relation, uh, at the University of Chicago was one of them. He was an expert at physiology. He had discovered how the heart works between its nerves and its muscles, how gastric fluids flow in the body. He would go on to warn about arsenates in vegetables that could poison the customers of farmers. Beer is not intoxicating, he testifies. It's not an intoxicating liquor. So does a Yale physiologist, Yandel Henderson. It's not intoxicating. He's done studies even when eight quarts of liquor would not be. When he says it, Congress erupts in laughter. Prohibitionists have their scientists too. Walter Miles of the Carnegie Institute is the main one. But in the Volstead Act hearings, mostly the Anti-Saloon League and others use a come-on type of logic with the congressman. After the 18 elections, they're mostly dry now, though the chamber they work in is not that exactly. There is alcohol flowing freely through the offices of the Congress. They side with the prohibitionists. You're drunk, you're drunk, and you can get drunk even on beer. That's 3%. And the Volstead Act is now passed with a 0.05% standard. Not everyone who supported the amendment knew this standard was going to happen, as we discussed. So they win. But there's still a concern among the prohibitionists. These academic physiologists have said this about beer being different from the other liquor, and you're going too far with the Volstead Act. They hadn't used a lot of science in the early arguments. They want to now. To get this done, We see a photograph of Miles explaining his experiment, sitting in a chair with a giant rocket-shaped tower behind him. It's full of oxygen. 
in front of him a rheostat, which we might say functions like a light dimmer switch. And this light dimmer switch doohooky is functions like that in principle. But imagine that you had to get the dimmer to be the exact same light level in the room while somebody was, say, opening and closing a window, so changing the light variable, and you had to straighten. That's what this measures. It's used to train pilots. This invention is called an intention control measure, or to use his term, a pursuitometer. Now to help the prohibitionist, Miles sought to try it on drunks. His study was intense, 50 hours per subject with eight subjects, intense watching of their ability to control the rheostat in different situations while they had consumed some of his concoctions of fermented grape juice. And he had something that his academic opponents didn't quite have. He had money. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) 
I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. There can be no doubt he established that drinking alcohol affects the performance on the real stat. Anywhere from 2 to 21% due to alcohol. It was a well-defined depression in mental process. There is, Miles said, no longer room for doubt to the toxic action of 2.75% beer by weight. Okay, so what does Miles achieve here? Essentially, he's now added science to the prohibitionist rhetorical and common sense and law enforcement arguments and political arguments like vote for this because there's a lot of dry voters out there who want it. Vote for this because it's going to reduce crime. That's what they thought in the beginning. Now, Miles has added science to that. And what you pretty much see is that throughout the 1920s, there's no successful scientific argument in um, raised otherwise. In fact, in 1926, Congress considers whether to change the intoxication standard and, and the prohibitionist side largely wins that debate. An American Journal of Public Health article from 1994 about this topic says Miles' monograph overpowered the arguments that beer had no intoxicating qualities. Perhaps the um, brewer scientists were a bit too haughty in going out there with a statement that beer's not intoxicating. So Miles just sought to disprove that without really disproving the larger question of is it intoxicating enough to be something in the 18th Amendment? No one could match those studies until the political power changed and there was a desire to do so from businesses from cities, from Congress. In 1932, Anton Carlson at University in Chicago completed studies of subjects given two to four bottles of 3.2% beer by weight, tested for blood, tested for urine, alcohol levels, tested for reaction time, tested for gait, tested for swing. He'd even Watch them sort cards. Carlson used 3.2 beer because it was less than what Miles was using in his spiked grape juice solutions. Carlson used more subjects, 36 men and women, with good ranges between ages, like a 19-year-old, a 60-year-old. He used something else. He used statistical techniques that Miles didn't. Significance testing ruled out some normal differences. See, when he's watching them sort cards, subjects could take 51 to 113 seconds to sort cards. That's just the difference between people before they've had anything to drink. You can allow that deviation into the experiment. He did that with each test. Miles hadn't done this. This is a basic of statistics. I am not the statistics expert, but I'm informed this is the basic, this significance testing. When the standard deviation used by accepted statisticians was applied, he said that two bottles of beer had zero effect. Meaning, again, there's this normal range between people, and it's not changing that. 
Brewers promoted Anton Carlson's work. And it ended up bringing 3.2 beer by weight into the public policy discussion because that's what Carlson had used and certified in his experiments. Henderson is also completing studies. And he's observing, for instance, what happens when people have a few beers over, say, a dinner that contains chickens and oysters and onions and other things. How does he do it? He has a group of doctors, five of them, observing these people eating dinner, drinking their beer, watching their behavior. And to these physiologists and psychologists' satisfaction, there is no discernible difference as a group of people eating a normal meal have two to four beers each. Henderson adds something as well. He essentially says there's no concern over a little intoxication. That's not what we're watching here. We're watching here is for bad behavior, abusive behavior, cursing, not being able to participate normal, like in a dinner party, as respected doctors might um, observe. It's very similar, Henderson says, to the way that we use poisonous substances. It's not good to have poisonous substances, but you need to use them in industrial production. Take monoxide, right? If you use monoxide, you have to make sure that you have adequate ventilation. Same here. The question is only about the high-end damage and abuse. This is a winning argument for a lot of people, particularly the 30s working class people who are exposed to a lot of things that are hazardous and are driving more, uh, breathing in more carbon monoxide and the like, because many Americans are noticing, hey, we're having to live with some of these poisonous substances. And then you're telling me I have to be pure in terms of not drinking. So it has a sociological as well as a scientific explanation. But what Henderson's really getting at is that line between what are you really searching for here when we say intoxication? Isn't it, is it the prohibitionist definition, which is any effect, that's what Miles seems to be searching for, or is it what a lot of courts use? Let's say it's a court case uh, involving, say, a charge of public drunkenness or something. What are they really looking for? A little less motor time? A reflex speed? No. It's the guy that's getting into a brawl on the street or giving an officer a problem. So as much as science and science methodology changes over 13 years, the public policy and politics and public opinion change. Between these two scientists, there's a one-two punch for the wet side now. Public opinion was dismissive of prohibition now in 1933. It was largely accepted that it had failed. Not everyone agreed, but most did, and most did in Congress. You have debates in Congress while Cullen Harrison's being discussed, um, where Congress, you know, a congressman from New York shouts down some of the prohibitionists. You know, we keep hearing all these stories, you know, the stories that used to have so much significance that, say, preachers would tell about, you know, a man ruined by uh, drinking or hurting old ladies and things like that. They were tired of hearing these stories because they knew that 80% of their constituents, this wasn't applicable to, and yet the policy is affecting them. Thursday, April 6, 1933, the Associated Press, Return of Beer discloses varied laws in 48 states. 
beer drinkers of the states and the District of Columbia, some of whom will be receiving their baptism, their baptism in brew of more than one half of 1% alcohol content, are prepared to welcome the advent of 3.2 beer on Friday. A survey in the 48 states shows few celebrations arranged for brew's return. Nevada is among the exceptions. Reno, divorced capital, has elaborate programs arranged in nightclubs. Beer spigots will be turned on in six other states, which have already legalized return of the 3.2 beer within the next few weeks. Quite a few of the state legislatures are striving for legislation, while in some, the hope is almost futile. Arizona. In Phoenix, beer will go on sale in Arizona Friday, and until June 14th, sale of the beverage will be under no restrictions, except those imposed by local authorities. Alabama is still dry as beer sales opens. The Alabama legislature, which only recently legalized near beer, that's the 0.05%, has a bill to legalize 3.2% for consideration. Arkansas is as dry as a camel's tonsils, regardless of the national litigation legalization of 3.2% beer, Arkansas must remain dry as a camel's tonsils until there is some change in the state prohibition law. That's what the Attorney General has ruled there. In Colorado, the foaming beaker of brew of the days before Colorado went bone dry in 1916 will be legal after midnight tonight. But the brass rail of song and story is still an outlaw. The Delaware legislature still struggling with beer control situation in the state. The state's enforcement has, act has not been repealed. In Mississippi, Mississippi state laws are bone dry. In New Hampshire, sales postponed. Could be postponed as late as June 1st. So you got, you got a ver- variety of things. You got some states delaying it a bit, but going to permit it. You have some states that permit it immediately. Um, Wyoming got its first beer May 18th. Virginia restricted it to 0.05% beer. Vermont delays till May 1st. Utah allowed the manufacturer a beer, but blocked sales of beer in the state. So you had states like Texas and South Dakota and others that were in the process of getting a bill out, but weren't uh, ready for the, the day that Congress allowed it. You have other states that were going to continue their bans. It would just be a one-year period where statutory law, the signing of a bill by the president, the assertion of the federal government that this was the new federal policy would run around the 18th Amendment. By the end of the year, by December, the the 21st Amendment would be ratified. And sales of all liquor would be permitted in the states where it's allowed. That's a key thing. And what's the what's the point here? And I think it's that key is that line between the side of the brewers and the side of the prohibitionists. Between, okay, we have a restriction to make society better, to save lives, to not have drunks roaming their streets, to not have uh, families ruined and things like that that you might have had from Miles and the Carnegie Institute and the Anti-Saloon League. And then on the other side, more libertarian values. I mean, the 21st Amendment is the ultimate libertarian movement in in America. 
uh, because they're running up against a lot of morality arguments. How can you be somebody that's for liquor in a sense? It's such a bad thing. It's having such a bad effect. How can you be for that? And it took a long time for that movement to build and for people to be able to stand up and say, yes, I am, because you're not just introducing one little change. You're creating a whole new police force, a whole larger federal government, and you're not doing it fairly, and we all know it, and things like that. All of these other issues came to the surface with this prohibition issue. It, in, in some ways, is not just about liquor. And it certainly affects national politics, changes the government, in a sense. Of course, it was probably clear Democrats were winning the 1932 election, but it wet dry was certainly one of the issues of that election that leaned overwhelmingly to the wet cause in the end of the day. But look at that across so many issues. Does government improve lives? Does government reduce harm? And at what level? At a level of zero harm? At a level of 50% harm? You know, what, where does the government intervene? And it's simply to say that you, when you examine this 3.2 debate, it's fungible. And it sets it up as it's an easy question because the prohibition seems silly and the prohibition is lost in the end. We have the 21st Amendment. There are, though, questions that you need to raise. And there are a few who feel that because prohibition went too far, we might have snapped back the other direction. For instance, look at violence and look at crime. And it's something that researchers raise. I've seen it written in journal article, but can't prove or can't document because there's not enough statistics available. We all know that it's obvious that prohibition created racketeering, helped organize crime. I'm not going to argue with that. But some argue that there's a another type of lawlessness that's not addressed and might have been better under prohibition. And that's, say, domestic abuse, say, small instances of more private um, public drunkenness or um, even violence in homes and, and, and things like that. F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel, This Side of Paradise, 1920. Then tragedy's emerald eyes glared suddenly at Armory over the edge of June. On the night after his ride to Lawrenceville, a crowd sallied to New York in quest of adventure and started back to Princeton about twelve o'clock in two machines. It had been a gay party and different stages of sobriety were represented. Amory was in the car behind. They had taken the wrong road and lost the way, and so were hurrying to catch up. It was a clear night, and the exhilaration of the road went to Amory's head. He had the ghost of two stanzas of the poem forming in his head. So the gray cat crept rightward in the dark, and there was no life stirred as it went by. And the still ocean passed before the shore in starred and glittering water rays, when they jolted to a stop. And Armory peered up, startled. A woman was standing beside the road, talking to Alec at the wheel. Afterwards, he remembered the happy effect that her old kimono gave her and the cracked hollowness of her voice as she spoke. You Princeton boys? Yes. 
Well, there's one of you killed here, and two others about dead. My God! Look! She pointed, and they gazed in horror. Under the full light of a roadside arc light lay a form, a face downward in a widening circle of blood. It was one of Amory's classmates. Oh, Christ, feel his heart. Then the insistent voice of the old crone in a sort of croaking triumph. He's quite dead, all right. The car turned over. Two of the men that weren't quite hurt just carried the others in. But this one's no use. When they ask one of the survivors, he says, Dick was driving and he wouldn't give up the wheel. We told him he'd been drinking too much. And then there was this damn curve. Oh, my God. This side of paradise. And it's the first but not the last time that Fitzgerald is going to introduce driving, particularly reckless driving, particularly drunken driving, into his novel as a key signal that the denouement of the story is coming, the character arc is coming, it's going to be a change, that it's the big tragic event of his story. We know that in The Great Gatsby, that car crash is everything. So it is with this side of paradise. Fitzgerald is representing an early concern just as prohibition is being enacted about what do you do with the situation where you're introducing an intoxicating liquor and a machine that could potentially hurt the people using it or others. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. You t when you talk about the 30s and when you talk about the movement towards the 21st, this was a little issue, but not a huge issue because the percentage of drivers was lower. The percentage of car ownership was lower. New York City did enact laws on drunk driving, but as interest increases in this, as new Devices are invented, so you could see blood alcohol levels better. The breathalyzer is invented in the 50s, and there's more car ownership in the 50s. This is a problem. 
And so a potential problem might have not been headed off by the efforts to repeal prohibition. And that's the usage of driving in automobiles. It's common knowledge that, say, in the 50s or in the 60s, you might have been able to talk your way out of a ticket with a officer. And generally, we're not probably pulled over in any case unless there was extremely erratic driving or danger to others or there was an automobile crash. The laws were much less intent where they existed on the books at all, and the enforcement was less intense. And now it's quite different. And there are many lawyers who argue it's gone too far. It's a neo-prohibitionism in some ways, but very weak then. And it's in 1981 where a mother whose child had been killed by a driver who had been arrested multiple times for drunk driving and not taken off the road. She starts Mothers Against Drunk Driving mad. They are successful, as successful as a lobby group can be in Washington. They've effectively increased the drinking age to 21 in most uh, states. In order to get federal money, you have to make your driving law 21. They've also uh, enhanced that, and in 2000, during the tail end of the Clinton administration, blood alcohol levels uh, to be considered intoxicated is 0.08%. Many states, such as Utah, are considering 0.05. Uh, many states are considering mimicking Utah, which has introduced a 0.05. Now, on the other side, uh, defense attorneys, other advocate groups say, you know, that could be two beers for a male. So again, what's intoxicated? Is it any effect on the wheel? Is it is it, it or is it complete and total blitzed? You know, and these are distinctions that enter public policy willy nilly sometimes. That question as both a problem that society has to solve, but then how rigorous are you about it? You see some states' attorney general, you know, advocating that, well, for each level we lower blood alcohol, we save this many hundred lives. And it's an interesting equation. It's something to, um, Michel Foucault might refer to as governmentality. And I don't want to use that to be dismissive or, or anything like that. I just, his concept's fascinating. Like a government has decided to kind of manage its population, that that's its job. And a person who's a pure libertarian would have a real argument with that. That's not your job. Your job is, as the one scientist Henderson said, just to, just the fringes, just the large levels of abuse. That's it. Police that. Not to save 700 lives. That's not your job. You know, I don't think it's so easy to resolve. I think it's a point of tension in politics that we can examine. But you see in the, in say, lowering of blood alcohol levels. Now, what's the other side of that? Talk to defense attorneys and they're going to tell you how many people were wrongly convicted, how, how much they've had to pay, how it's affected their jobs, um, the increased policing it requires, the increased money that it requires, all of these things. One final thing to mention, and that is that uh, Minnesota still has 3.2% beer. Colorado had it for a while. Uh, there's still certain grocery stores and gas stations that can only sell 3.2% of beer. So this little novelty, the result of scientific experiments before prohibitions end and the result of uh, waiting for the constitutional amendment to be repealed, 
had a long legacy and 3.2% beer remained the standard in certain usages, certain venues in many states. There's been several attempts, even since uh, COVID, to repeal it in Minnesota, and it just hasn't. It's not so much that people oppose it as I understand it. It's that they can't get legislative action on it. The thing they'll say in Minnesota is people don't even realize they're drinking 3.2% beer. I want to thank you for listening. My website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Um, listen, I mean, uh, if you can contribute anything to the Patreon, that's great. We have a Patreon site. You can go to the website to link to it. There is a, I've featured a couple of extra scraps from various trips to the library and things that are available there. Thank you to everyone who's given reviews. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening.